This is the Mark Dolan Way. Top tips for mind, body and soul, some great life hacks and my favourite products of the week. This show is available on all podcast platforms or you can watch it. Just subscribe to the Mark Dolan Way on YouTube and join the Facebook group. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to the show. I hope you are very well. Lots to talk about today. Reality is overrated. My father struggled with his business in the 1990s and things got so bad that when he received a letter in the post, he would only open a small amount of the letter and he could just peek through the gap and see that it was a bill and then he would just put it to one side. Now, obviously, I don't advocate ignoring bills, but this was my father's coping strategy for what was an overwhelming crisis. In the end, he worked out solutions, he got help and he navigated his way through and he survived. One of the earliest experiences I had with an entrepreneur when I started in the world of work, I asked my first boss, how did you get into business? What made you get into business? And he said, ignorance and blind stupidity. He said if he'd known what he'd be going through, how hard it was, what a ridiculous proposition it was to try and be an entrepreneur, he would never have done it, but he was ignorant and that's why he did it. He was very successful. Steve Jobs, famous for something called the reality distortion field, in which he would go to his team and he'd say, you can build a computer in three and a half weeks. And they'd say, no, it takes three and a half months. And he said, you can do it. And it was not true. They couldn't do it because that's impossible. However, three and a half weeks later, they built a computer because reality is overrated. So lots to talk about, let me tell you. I've got to say that first boss of mine was a really great guy. Um, an Irish guy. Entrepreneurs are a special bunch. And what is an entrepreneur? I mean, you think of an entrepreneur as somebody that's worth millions and millions of pounds and drives a Ferrari or a Rolls Royce. But if you're self-employed and you put invoices in, you're an entrepreneur. If you run a news agent, if you've got a stall in a market, you're an entrepreneur. If you're doing videos, and hoping to monetize those videos via YouTube, you are an entrepreneur. We live in the era of the entrepreneur. I think it's the way to go. Who wants to have a boss? It's ironic, isn't it? Because actually for the first time in over 20 years, I do have a boss and I am an employee, but it's still, even as an employee, I still feel slightly entrepreneurial because I've got a show and that feels like a, my product that I'm selling. And, and therefore, I would say the lines are slightly blurred. In fact, I would say that, yes, I'm now employed in a job with a boss and management and a hierarchy, but I approach the work in an entrepreneurial way. And I would suggest that you can too. I've actually said to my colleagues, because I work for a media company, a television network, and I've actually said we should all think entrepreneurially in the way that we do this job. And I think actually the problem you have when you get a job and when you have a boss and you've got that fixed income every month is that you are no longer enterprising. Very often you don't stretch yourself. Your performance is limited. 
and you don't feel invested in what you're doing. And I think you should, because if you have a think about what value you can bring to an enterprise, even if you're an employee, and even if you don't benefit financially from bringing extra value, A, it's very satisfying, and B, you're boosting your skill set and making yourself more employable elsewhere or less sackable when the company you work for is under financial pressure. See, people don't just think about that, do they? They don't think about downturns. You get companies like Facebook. I mean, could Facebook be richer? They are worth billions, but they've been cutting thousands of staff because they've seen their profits drop. And you would have thought if you work for Facebook, like that's it, that's a job for life, such a rich company. But no, no, they've had to cut their cloth and people have gone. Who have the people that remained? Who were the people that remained? They are the people that were bringing value. The people that probably worked harder than, than they needed to and just delivered more as a member of the team than they had to. I've got to say, doing things you don't have to is a tremendous quality, both in your professional world and in your private world. I'm married, I've got kids and I try, and of course I don't always get it right, but I try to do extra things that may go unnoticed, but are going to help the people around me. I really, really take great pride in that. Um, perhaps you do a surprise tidy up of your home or you gift a loved one something that they weren't expecting and it's just a lovely surprise. Or you just go out of your way to help a friend in a manner that they hadn't anticipated or expected. Go the extra mile. Most people don't bother. Most people are lazy. They cut corners. And actually, if you're lazy, you don't gain anything from that. It's negative. It eats into you. So... Go the extra mile and be, and, and that's why, because the thing is, right, if you're entrepreneurial, if you run your own business, then anyone that runs their own business, they give 100% because they feel so invested in it. It's it's for them, it's their project, it's about their survival. But if you work for a company and you have that mentality, I guarantee you will go up the ranks. So let's say you're a junior clerk. Think of that as your business. That is your personal business and it's going to thrive around the other businesses, which is your colleagues. It's a beautiful thing. Uh, but yes, this reality thing is is interesting, isn't it? That my first boss said that we were, that, that he was completely ignorant and incredibly stupid. And that's why he started a business. And it's true because, I mean, if you, for example, let's say you're going to start an ice cream company and you speak to people in the industry, they'll tell you that the ice cream business is full and it's dominated by Hagen Dars and Walls and Ben and Jerry's. And they'll just say, that's it. It's it's a market which is stitched up. It's done. That is wrong. That is not correct. Apple and Steve Jobs were told that the PC was the dominant computer and nothing else would prevail. Well, he came up with Apple. He came up with the Mac, the Macintosh computer. Apple is now the most valuable company in the world. And I think it's potentially the most valuable company in the history of the world as well. They're doing well, let's be honest, with a business model that Steve Jobs was told was not going to work. 
and he had lots of bumps along the way. But what he didn't do is he didn't exist in reality. He didn't work with the facts. He didn't look up the statistics because where there's a will, there's a way. You just have a vision. Are you ready for the Elton John story of the day? Short, stubby fingers, the wrong kind of fingers for the piano. That's what his piano teacher told him. He did not have the looks to be a pop star, did he? We love Elton. I think you'll agree. We love Elton. But, you know, especially if you look at pictures of him when he started out, he was no Elvis Presley. Let me tell you, he was no Cliff Richard. He was no George Michael. He was no David Bowie. He was no Mick Jagger. He was this stumpy, dumpy, bespectacled man from Pinner in Middlesex with very thick, rich, voluminous eyebrows, a button nose, a chunky frame, short legs, kind of weird quasi-military walk, uh, heavy set, balding, obviously, we know about that, it wasn't happening the photo shoot for his second album which was the album that really saw him come to public recognition was the elton john album his first album was empty sky but the second one that really uh, really got things going had your song on it was called elton john that's the album it was an eponymous album and by the way a sensational album i think i would put it as one of the world's leading experts on elton john at number th in the top three of his best ever albums alongside god what would the other two be goodbye yellow brick road and god this is hard the top three either tumbleweed connection or too low for zero but in order to recognize and cast a spotlight on elton's great work in the 80s i'm going to go for too low for zero so there you go too low for zero Goodbye, Yellow Brick Road and the Elton John album. They're three classics, but there are over 30 studio albums. Any number of those could be in the top three because I think he's a genius. But he was not a kind of pop star persona, was he? In fact, God bless him. When they did the photo shoot for that second album, the management company just said none of these pictures of his face are good. It just wasn't happening. They just took pictures of elton john and they didn't look good because they were pictures of him and he didn't look like a pop star you were never because he changed his name from reg dwight but you can't change the face so what did they do well if you google the album elton john uh they basically covered his face up so they just shot him in silhouette really grainy a lot of contrast basically a picture of him almost in the dark very moody so only half his face is lit and it was good because it was that atmospheric it was that mystery who is this guy and it worked brilliantly so what they were doing there is they were sort of ignoring and avoiding reality which is just a picture of elton john wasn't going to cut it but a doctored really really heavily contrasted shaded picture perfect reality is overrated it's overrated um, but then the other thing he did that was very clever after that is he just owned it so if you have something like he, he lost his hair can you imagine how devastating that was for this young pop star to go bald 
in his early 20s and he just owned it. He owned it. You look at those pictures, the Dodger Stadium, all of that, just a bald head and the big glasses and the outrageous outfits and what a career. And that's what you do. You're like, do you know what? I'm bald. I'm owning this. I need glasses. Well, let's make myself famous for wearing glasses. I'll become, I'll become the most famous glasses wearer in the world. So you just own it, baby. Whatever that alleged weakness you've got. Maybe you've got a lisp, all right? Maybe you've got a massive mole on your face, okay? Who knows? Who cares? Maybe you dribble. You're just kind of a dribbly sort of person. You just drool all the time. Um, own it. Own it, baby. Be confident. Don't hide away from it. Don't hide away from it because you will become its prisoner if you hide away from anything. Like when people, um, you know, when old men dye their hair and it's just like they're in their 60s or 70s and it's mysteriously jet black. Don't do it. Just get out there. I've got grey hair now. Own it, baby. Own it. I have been immersing myself in quite a few things this week. I've been immersing myself in a very, very special comedian called Gary Shandling, an American comedian, sadly no longer with us, died of a heart attack. I think it was a heart attack. Anyway, he's not alive. He was a comedian and he was a comedy writer. And he was particularly well known for a brilliant sitcom called The Larry Sanders Show, which was a fictional talk show. So it was, it was a sitcom set on an imaginary TV show, like a David Letterman style late night comedy talk show. And Gary Shandling plays Larry Sanders, who's a very shallow, egotistical TV host. And it sort of highlights the absurdities and hypocrisies of the world of showbiz. It's a classic. It's actually a lot of it's on YouTube and I can recommend uh, just jump straight in episode one. It was very groundbreaking. People feel that it led the way for programs like The Office and Curb Your Enthusiasm for this kind of reality style comedy where you're not sure if you're watching a documentary or an actual constructed show. And I don't know why I just um, happened to stumble across this guy. But what I do is if I watch somebody's art, like I watched a bit of his comedy, I become interested in him and I go into the background, like, who was he? So I started watching all these documentaries and these interviews with him, talking about his life and talking about his craft. I'm quite obsessive about this. And I do it around every three weeks. I'll just fixate on somebody. And then I will hoover up as much information about them as I can from documentaries and interviews. And I just download it into my head. And I hope, actually, that I've been sharing some of this with you. I became obsessed with Joan Rivers for a while. I hope I talked about her on the show. Uh, and obviously a comic genius and very bold and very fearless and much missed. Um, I remember her saying that showbiz is rejection, rejection, rejection. That that is, that is the basis of showbiz. That is the starting point. So if you get rejected, you don't think, oh, I'm doing really badly and this is terrible and I'm awful and I'm... no, 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 no. Showbiz is rejection. That's what it is. Okay. Being surprised to find rejection in showbiz is like being surprised to find grey rock on the moon. You're welcome. Thank you. Not a bad metaphor. I think you'll agree. Very well thought through and totally accurate. Um, but yeah, but actually I would extend that to life. 
is rejection, rejection, rejection. Life is pain, pain, pain. That is the basis, that is a starting point. When you realize that, it's terribly liberating. So I went through a Joan Collins phase. I went through a Phil Collins phase and I did do a bit of a special on Phil Collins, didn't I? A good number of weeks ago, we talked about Phil Collins. The fact that he was this amazing underdog who just considered himself a drummer, but then when he was in Genesis, they lost their singer and they're like, oh, you're going to have to sing. He's like, I can't sing. I'm not a singer. He's like, all right, I'll sing. And then he became like a very popular singer. And then Genesis broke up. He said, I don't have a band anymore. I'll have to be a songwriter. But I don't write songs. But I better write songs. And he wrote songs. And the first album was, I think, um, called Face Value. And it had it had um, that famous hit on it with the drums. In the Air Tonight. First track on that album. So everything that he said he couldn't do, he could massively do. And not only that, but be the best at it. So I thought Phil Collins was very inspiring. So I've I've gone through loads of these people. Who's going to be next? But for the purposes of today's show, I'll give you the Gary Shandling stories. Just a couple, because we've actually got to get on with um, my book of the week. He was a an electrical engineer at university so he did electrical engineering and it was really hard i mean you can imagine it was hard it is hard isn't it i think we can all agree electrical engineering is probably hard harder than history of art or drama i would humbly suggest but it's all of course a matter of opinion and he said it was brutal it was excruciating he said you couldn't have a break from the subject for three minutes or you would fail it was relentless he said that if you got a C in your exam, it was just like a triumph. That's how hard it was. He said that at one point, everyone in his year got 10 out of 100 and he got 12 out of 100. And the teacher said, I'm failing all of you. So it was a very hard subject and it was engineering. Engineering is a great discipline. Sadly, I've never done it. Otherwise, I would be a lot more equipped for the world. But the thing about engineering is that it's facts, it's data. You've got to crunch the numbers. If you've got like an engineer that works in in the building trade, then they've got to make sure that a house is specified in a way that it won't fall down. We put a glass roof in our kitchen and it had a beam. Have a beam? Yeah, had a beam. And it was lovely. And we put it in. It was a glass beam and it was it was a, it was a glass roof. And then an, an engineer friend came around many months afterwards and said, you've, you've only got one beam on there. So if it snows, snow is actually very heavy. It's surprising that, isn't it? You wouldn't think snow was heavy, but snow is heavy, turns out, when there's a lot of it. He said, if you when it snows and it lands flat on that roof, that single beam may not be enough. There's too much surface area. You need another beam. So we got another beam. We put a second beam in. That is engineering, right? An idiot like me wouldn't realise that. It looked look solid to me. But if you did the kind of calculations, it's a weak spot there. And of course, you'll know that when buildings fall down, when bridges fall down, it is a failure of engineering. Normally, it's not construction. It's um, just poorly, poorly engineered. Fascinating, isn't it? When Mercedes-Benz brought out the A-Class Mercedes, which was their first kind of mass production, sort of cheaper family car, 
it was everyone loved it they thought it was amazing and then about six months after it was off the production line it passed sorry it failed the elk test in in sweden the elk test is essentially in sweden they get elks and they run into the road and you got to get the car the car's kind of got to like quickly turn and get out of the way of the elk unique to sweden the elk test so they did the elk test on the mercedes and it rolled over the elk caused it to turn upside down which is obviously very dangerous so they had to re-engineer the car to pass the elk test and that was a failure at somebody an engineer at mercedes-benz had not done enough engineering had not calculated what might happen if the car had to swerve very suddenly but the car flipped uh, there is the story of the Millennium Bridge in London, which was a multi-million pound bridge. And it was obviously built for the year 2000. I think it was, the architect was rich, was, it was, um, not Richard Rogers, the other one, you know, the other famous British architect who's still around, I think, Norman Foster. And it was a lot of money, a lot of fanfare. Well, when it was opened, Londoners were walking across this bridge and the bridge began to sway. It was known as the Wobbly Bridge because if enough people walked on it, and if I think there was a bit of wind as well, a combination of people and wind, but it began to rock from side to side. And there was great uproar about it. Now the engineers defended the bridge and they said, listen, it might be moving, but it's absolutely structurally sound. Um, we've, you know, we have the tolerances here that it can handle some movement. Because that's the other thing engineers do is they specify for a bit of tolerance, a bit of movement. Um, skyscrapers these days are engineered to handle an earthquake so they can move a bit if there's an earthquake. And so... They said it's fine. It's wobbly, but it's fine. But anyway, we live in a very health and safety world now where it was considered too dangerous. Oh, God. Welcome to the modern world of ultra caution. So they spent millions on structural support to stop it moving. And now it doesn't move. Now it's solid. I think they missed a trick because I think that was 23 years ago. I think to this day, people would be, would be traveling the world to have a go on the wobbly bridge don't you don't you think it would be the biggest attraction ever the famous wobbly bridge in london rename it the wobbly bridge and allow it to be a metaphor for life which is that things aren't perfect and that's okay it's wobbly it's a bit like if your life is a bit wobbly that's okay too imagine not being wobbly you've got to expose yourself to the ability for things to go wrong. It's like in relationships, right? In relationships, if you're not willing to be hurt, you'll never have a successful relationship and you certainly won't meet anyone because if you avoid being hurt, well, then you won't speak to someone, you won't form a relationship. Love involves colossal risk. Remember my entrepreneur friend, how did he get into business? Uh, ignorance and blind stupidity. Well, it's the same with love. It's the same with everything. Reality is overrated. 
Reality runs up your spine and the pieces finally fit. That's a lyric by Bernie Taupin, whose book is out. Um, Bernie Taupin, Elton John's lyricist, very excited. It's my purchase of the week. I couldn't believe this. There was an email from eltonjohn.com. And the reason why I love to have... I'm on, I subscribe to the eltonjohn.com website. So I get the newsletter. And the reason why it's great is because when the email comes in, it... On the name of the email, it just says Elton John. So it looks like Elton John sent you an email. Never say never. And it clicked and it said, oh, Bernie Taupin, who wrote the lyrics uh, to most of Elton John's hits, has got a new book out. Uh, click here to purchase. And I thought, well, come on. I need to buy that book, don't I? So I clicked on it and it took me to Waterstones, the website. And it, it said signed copy at no extra cost. I beg your pardon. So I just grabbed it. And I paid for it straight away. And it's the cost of the book. But it's signed by the author. And it's on its way. Now, Elton, sorry, Bernie Taupin wrote the words for like Candle in the Wind and Your Song and Rocket Man, right? I'm about to take delivery of a book that's got his name in it written by him with the same hand that wrote Rocket Man. I think that's pretty good, don't you? The same hand that wrote those words that writes the words Bernie Taupin on the book that I'm about to own. And this is a quick reminder, of course, within seconds they were sold out because it's a signed copy. But I couldn't believe it because I wasn't like, I'm not one of those people, by the way, I'm not an Uber fan that buys memorabilia. I do not. I think it's a waste of money. You don't need to. It's silly. When it comes to Elton John, I will stop talking about Elton John in a minute, I promise. When it comes to Elton John, I all I, I don't need signed T-shirts and posters and concert tickets and all that. You know, I have the music. That's what I'm interested in. I have the body of work. So I don't need signed this and I don't need signed that. But I did think a signed book would be nice. Anyway, um, immediately sold out. And this is a reminder to all of you that if you are in a situation where you're presented with something that's just a no-brainer you've got to grab it straight away you've just got to go for it because I've got to tell you about a story and it happened very recently and I was with a friend in the Apple store and they were trading in they wanted to trade in their computer so they went to the Apple store and the Apple store said, oh, yeah, you'll get £535 for this computer, which was amazing because the computer was knackered. And it had a little crack on the sort of corner of the screen. Uh, but it was valued at £535, right? So what my friend did, my friend was thinking, yes. That's amazing. That's way more than I thought. By the way, that was more than you would get if you just sold it yourself on eBay. Normally, when companies give you a trade-in, it's not as good as you selling it yourself. But this was a no questions asked. We'll take it. Here's the money. The problem with eBay is you list it for 600 and then, you know, you've got to put the details in and you've got to tell them about the battery doesn't isn't good anymore or whatever. And it can like drop massively in value. So this was a great deal, more than my friend was expecting. But just decided to hold fire um, 
because let me think about it was basically what what um what what they what they thought let me think about it so my friend went off and didn't trade in for what was a complete no-brainer then they decided okay i will train it trade in i will trade in a few days later so they go to another apple store and they go hi 535 pounds i'm here to trade this in and they look at the computer and they saw the little crack it was not on the screen but just underneath the screen and the most tiny little pathetic crack that doesn't affect the performance of the machine at all it's like the sort of frame the, the bottom frame of the screen tiny crack anyway the person at apple saw this crack and said oh it's, it's got this crack i'll have to um that'll have to go into the valuation so then they revalued it for 120 pounds so we've gone from 535 to 120 because of the crack which has cost my friend over 400 pounds now all i'm telling you is that that original offer of 535 was ridiculous it was a no-brainer it was a golden ticket it was like winning the lottery and my friend should have just said 535 thank you very much let me shake you by the hand let's do that deal because the person in the original visit to the apple store they'd approved it they, yep they put it through the system 535 they've thought about it they've gone somewhere else down to 120 devastating so what should that person have done well don't look a gift horse in the mouth if it's a no-brainer just go 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 right like me buying that book straight away you can't get the signed copy of the Torpin now. Of course you can't. How could you? It's the man that wrote, kiss the bride and I'm still standing for God's sakes and healing hands. And the one, and I want love. I'm kind of wandering into the more obscure Elton tracks now that even you don't know. So yeah, just anything that's a no brainer, just bang, bang, bang. Um, you're in a job interview. You love the company. You like the people. The vibe is great. And the boss goes, do you know what? I'm, I'm happy to do, deal, do the deal now. Should we do this? Do you want to just, do you want to come work for us? Just go for it. Go for it. Do you mind if I think about it for 24 hours? Just grab it. Grab it. It's amazing how many people turn turn their nose up at these amazing opportunities you just grab it don't look a gift horse in the mouth we're silly aren't we we don't you know we're afraid to trust our judgment to trust our gut maybe we're greedy and we're thinking oh, i could get more somewhere else if it's too good to be true just grab it with both hands and by the way if ever anybody offers you something amazing that let's say you were going into a company and you were hoping that when you discuss your salary that you're going to get fifty thousand pounds right that's your real kind of oh god that would be amazing you know probably it's probably going to be 30 35 38 50 would be amazing and they say to you um well we'd like to start you at 90 right you've got to be so so cool going yeah yeah thanks that's 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 decent that's that's a decent you can't like be punching the air and going around dancing and all that just go yeah yeah 90s about right that's good life is one long game of poker 
just go, yeah, yeah, 90. Definitely, I was thinking, yeah, 100 would be nice, but yeah, I'll take 90. That's how you do it. It's all a bloody game. It's all bloody theatre. I swear to God, it really is. Now, lots to get through. So much to talk about. Oh, yeah. So Gary Shandling was a an engineer. And engineers calculate things, right? Engineers are the people to trust because they are the ones who crunch the numbers. It's not opinion, right? Making sure that a bridge doesn't fall down is not some kind of debating society parlor game. It is just angles and measurements and grams and kilograms and stress points. And it's all just like, you know, you got to get the protractor out and the uh, maybe a compass, maybe use a compass. <laughs> I am so unmathematical that when I was at school, I just used the compass to stab people. That was what the compass was for, was to stab folk. Normally on the back from, because in front of me in class, I could stab them through the blazer. Those thick blazers were quite protective. I think I'd have claimed more lives if it wasn't for those thick, chunky blazers, especially in the winter. But yeah, so engineers can be trusted. That's why I quite like engineers when it comes to debating all, all sorts of issues around government health policy, you name it, economics. Bring in some engineers because they know their onions because they're used to looking at data and problem solving by making the numbers work. Honestly, I'm a bit obsessed with engineers. And that is one of those things I could never do. You could lock me in a jail cell for 20 years with a load of engineering books and I would come out none the wiser. But Gary Shanding was an engineer, a an electrical engineer, and it was very hard. And uh, one day after three years, this is a very funny story, really, or an amazing story. After three years, he was in the lab and he just stepped outside to get some water. And as he drank the water, he thought, I, I just can't go back there. So he finished. He finished his studies. He just didn't go back into that room. He's like, I just can't do it anymore because it was very hard. But he said that it wasn't a waste. Now, my dear uncle used to say this. My dear uncle Frank used to say, education is no burden to carry. Isn't that a great line? No burden to carry. So anything that happens to you in life, any experience, one moment, please. And because he was an engineer, when he stopped being an engineer and became a comedian and comedy writer, he applied the discipline of engineering to writing and to writing jokes. So rather than trying to establish where the energy is going to go through a circuit as an electrical engineer, he was thinking about the structure of a joke and the correct number of words and the rhythm. And really a perfect joke is like an equation. And any comedian will tell you that you can have a perfectly brilliant joke and if you change one word, and there's an adjective which has got two syllables rather than one, 
then it's not funny anymore. So he brought that precision and that discipline to his comedy writing, which I would argue helped him to become very, very successful. It was the quality of his writing. And that came from his background in engineering. So in a way, I think we should all and can all be engineers in a sense to have that discipline that whatever you're working at, that you really think about how rigorous it is. And is it, you know, let's say you're, you're doing a company report, you're doing something at work. Is it fully functional? Has it been stress tested? Will it survive the rigors of reality? Whatever you're doing, make it well engineered. My younger son is, is a bit of an engineer. He's really thorough. And he made scrambled eggs the other day. And I swear to God, they were like an engineer's scrambled eggs. They were just better than normal scrambled eggs because he'd done it really carefully. Scrambled eggs. They were just really neat and even and the correct color and the right consistency. He brought an engineering ethic, ethic excuse me, to the to the cooking of scrambled eggs. So anyway, that's it. So if you watch Gary Shandling's work, and I particularly recommend the Larry Sanders show, then you can see that craft. And he said, yeah, he said, you know, um, he because of his engineering background, he would look at a script and he's like, it doesn't fu- it doesn't fully work on that side. When you get that that side, well, that character wouldn't really say that because he doesn't think like that. Da, 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 da. And it was just a tortuous way of doing it, an awful lot of effort, but of course produced this timeless work. I'll tell you what's very well engineered. The British comedy series Faulty Towers. Written by Connie Booth and John Cleese. Highly recommended. If you're outside the UK and you don't know about it, check out Faulty Towers. F-A-W-L-T-Y Towers, which is a 1970s comedy set in a hotel run by a bumbling, incompetent and irritable uh, hotel owner called Basil Faulty and his long-suffering wife, Sybil. And I hope I'm not exaggerating, but I understand that they spent 18 months writing each episode. It can't be that long. How can it have been that long? But months. It was months per episode. And in the end, there were 12. So very, very thorough. But that's because if you watch them, so well-engineered, such clever plot twists, because they were like a little mini farce, each one, like a little mini play. Beautifully structured. So there you go. Um, That's what he did. He always tried to make things. So whatever you're doing, make it better. Be an engineer. Um, One other quick thing about Gary Shandling, which is very separate, which is that bad things are a gift. Okay, bad things are a gift. If something happens to you that doesn't kill you, it's a learning moment. It allows you to write some new software for yourself and become stronger, become better. So bad things, when they happen to you, think of them as a gift. And Shandling is an example because he was young, young comedy writer, maybe in his 20s, early 20s. And a car crashed into the back of him. No problem. He gets out of the car to inspect the damage. And so he's kind of just like kneels down to look at the bumper of the car. And as he does so, he gets hit by a different passing car. And it whacks him in the face. Unbelievable. I think there was like nerve damage to his face and scooped his face off. It was just 
a dreadful, awful accident. And he had great medics and they operated and he survived. But it was one of those life or death moments, life changing. And when he recovered, at that time, he was just a kind of jobbing TV writer doing, I think, crappy dramas. And after he recovered from the operation, he just thought, is that really what I want to do? And he asked himself, is there more to life than this, than writing this very pulpy, generic drama? He said, no, I want to entertain. I want to be a comedy writer. I want to be a comedian. And he started doing stand-up and stuff like that. And he said he would never have had the courage to do something so terrifying if he hadn't faced sort of the possibility of death as a result of that accident. So it was a bad thing, and you don't want to get your face scooped off in a car accident, of course. But he wouldn't have become the person he was and achieved all of that and fulfilled his wishes, really, listened to his inner voice if it wasn't for that bad thing that happened. So bad things are a gift. A couple of other things before we get to our book of the week. I just put some laundry on. My latest thoughts on laundry. You know my golden rule, which is that the detergent you should use is just always wool detergent, right? For all your washing, you use wool detergent because it's better for the environment and also gentler on your clothes. Because if you notice how your clothes, they lose their colour after a while when they go in the machine. Well, they won't if you use wool detergent, right? It's just machine detergent that's for wool and silk only. Make that your detergent, full stop. And I will allow you to have the kind of bleachy aerial type product or purcell. If you've got whites that are a bit stained or they've lost their whiteness, fine, use the hardcore stuff. But for the rest of it, go wool detergent only. You'll never look back. It smells good. It's gentle on your clothes. It preserves not just the, the dye, but the fabric as well. The fabric doesn't get so sort of, you know, dried out, desiccated and worn out. So I've been doing that um, and I've gone for a new solution with the laundry. I don't know what you think about this, which is controversial. I got two sons who are sort of stinky. Yuck. Ugh, boys are disgusting. I think we can agree. So you've got towels and their bum's been on that towel and you've got underwear and ugh. thanks, but no thanks. My wife is, you know, clean, fragrant. She cannot generate dirt. But boys, these teenagers, yuck. Just shedding. They're always shedding. They're like cats. Do you know what I mean? Just molting, shedding, excreting, leaking and scratching and sniffing. And uh, it's just, uh, it's unedifying, actually. It's, it's. Literally, it's absolutely intolerable that the filth that they produce on a daily basis. It's like having two German Shepherd Alsatians, like as your children. <laughs> so, um, my stuff, right? My T-shirts, my wife's stuff, their stuff. It all goes together in in the drum in the machine. So my clothes being washed with their sort of stinky soiled linen and cottons and polyesters I find it disgusting so here's my thinking 
you want to save the planet, don't you? So you're not going to do like a long, hot wash with millions of cycles. And also you want to save energy and electricity. But here's what I do now. I do a short wash, right? Short. But at 60. It's really quick. It's like a minute. Sorry, a minute. I've gone mad. Um, it's, it's about an hour and six minutes. It's just over an hour, right? Which is cottons, 60, short wash, right? Rapid, quick wash. Most washing machines do have the quick wash option, don't they? So that's what I do. And my compromise is I'm using some energy to go to 60, but that's only for a short few minutes. And I know that those clothes then have been properly cleaned to 60 degrees, right? the bacteria, the dirt, the yuck, the blood and the urine and the, all the rest of it. Family show, I won't go into too many details, but it's gone to 60 rather than 40 for two hours. Do you know what I mean? What do you think? Is that an idea? 60? Short? Anyway, I'm, I'm really happy with it. The, the clothes come out smelling really clean. The other thing I do is I always put a little bit more detergent in than they say. Is that wrong? a little bit more just for that extra reassurance that they're going to be clean there you go so welcome to 60 um you obviously have to be careful with your clothes that you don't shrink them but let me tell you that most cotton it says 40 or even 30 on on the item on the clothing but most cotton can easily do to 60 it's not a problem it is not a problem it is a problem with wool problem with silk not a problem polyester polyester doesn't shrink viscose can but there you go that's my laundry tip um right now look we do have where are we at 43 minutes i did want to take you through this book the four agreements should we do it yeah let's do it let's do it let's do it okay we're going to finish on this which is a book that i've been reading and it's called the four agreements let me just call it up. The Four Agreements, A Practical Guide to Personal Freedom by Don Miguel Ruiz. D-O-N-M-I-G-U-L and then Ruiz, R-U-I-Z. And it's called The Four Agreements. And I really like the message of this book. Now, what it says is that we are taught strict rules as kids. And we are forced to abide by these rules as adults. And of course, we do stick to them as adults because we were kind of brainwashed into doing that as a kid. And we don't choose those rules of life. And of course, some of the rules of life will be good, like don't steal and be nice to your friends and all of that. But they have come from on high. They've come from mum and dad. They've come from society. And it's called in the book, The Collective Dream. And in the book, he says, we don't choose our tongue. Is that what it says? I've just taken some notes. <laughs> it's What does it say? We don't choose our togas? Can you read that? I'll come back to that. It's a shame that I can't read my own handwriting when I'm describing a book to you. 
But basically, we are taught this behavior. Okay, we're, we're, we're raised with a certain set of values, a certain kind of behavioral code, beliefs. We're told what's good, what's bad. We don't choose that. Uh, it's uh, He describes it as a kind of domestication of the human being. We're rewarded for obeying. You know, when you do what your parents tell you to do, you get ice cream, you get praised. When you get older, because you fear rejection, you actually pretend to have these values because that's what you've been like, you know, if I think this and I say this, I'm good. So sometimes you have an artifice where you just put on this front in order to please people. I mean, being a people pleaser is a real weakness. I suffer from it. Most people do. But that comes from this idea of being taught these strict rules as a kid, this framework of existence, which comes from somebody else, not you. And like I said, some of it will be welcome, but some of it won't. I had a friend at university and she could never relax at home when she was growing up because she always had to be jolly for her dad because her dad was just one of these upbeat people and he just wanted the kids jolly. So she'd have to like crack jokes and just be upbeat whenever he was around because it was expected. What a pressure. What a pressure. Well, fast forward 30 years and now she is like always trying to be jolly and make people happy because that's what her dad wanted. She doesn't live with her dad anymore, but she's stuck with that mechanism. It didn't come from her. So what this book would argue is that she needs to rewrite that. But we've all got these things um, that have this this brainwashing in us, some of which is valuable, some of which is not. It might be boys told, you know, boys don't cry, things like that. It's unhelpful. If you're going to cry, you should just cry. But what the book says is eventually these rules, these agreements, they don't need to control us. We can rewrite them. We can break free. We can break free with new agreements. Okay. So the first agreement, which is a new one, is be impeccable with your word. Now, what that means is do not use your word against yourself. So impeccable apparently actually means without sin and it's considered a sin to be negative about yourself and criticize yourself so you go to the office and you go i'm a bit rubbish at my job or you know you go to the sports center and you go i'm really unfit and you play chess with someone you go i'm really thick and i'm really stupid and i'm rubbish at chess or you go out on a date and you're like i'm ugly i'm boring right you're you're actually speaking against yourself And it tells you not to do that. You know, that little voice in your head that says you're not good enough. It's not good attacking yourself. So you've got to be impeccable with your word, not use your your word against yourself. And since I started reading the book, I I realized the number of times that I make these self-deprecating remarks. Um, I sent a video that I'd recorded for, for a colleague. Comedy video and. The initial message I wrote, oh, you know, um, it's not great at the moment. Future episodes, the writing will be better. Performance will be better, right? And I just removed that. I deleted it because I realized I was breaking this uh, excellent agreement from this book. Why should I tell this person that it's not great at the moment, but uh, it'll get better as it goes along? No. So I just rewrote it and I said, hi, here's the video. I hope you like it. 
bang, job done. So I removed that bit where I criticize it. It's like, no, did I give it my best shot? Yes, I did. What more do you want? So that was okay. So that directly influenced me there. Um, that particular note, having prepared this for you, this book and reading it, I put that into action. I removed a line that was critical about myself to a colleague. Um, it just says that words shape your sense of reality. And that's why you got to big yourself up. You got to be positive about yourself and not talk yourself down. So that is the agreement is not to attack yourself. Be impeccable with your word. Number two, take nothing personally. And if you have a strong sense of yourself, you never will. You need a sense of personal importance. If somebody attacks you or criticizes you, has a go at you, it's not about you. That's about them. They are poisonous. They are negative. They're bitter. And you are merely the vector. So I'm on social media. I'm on Twitter. And sometimes people will just say nasty things to me. Mostly not. Mostly it's lovely. But you get some nastiness. Now, two things they're entitled to. It's free speech. I'm a public figure. No point putting yourself out there if you can't take some criticism. You know, it's a free world, isn't it? You put your head above the parapet. If I was an accountant, I wouldn't have people having a go at me on Twitter. Well, I'm not an accountant. So you take the rough with the smooth. No problem. But when I see anything nasty, like let's say I'll send a tweet out and it will be about a political issue or about a health issue or anything else. Um, you know, I'm a bit of a, a fan of low carbohydrate eating. And so I'll do a tweet which is positive about low carb. And then some people will just come back to me and they, they won't engage with the argument. My position, my argument about why getting carbohydrates low is, is really good for your health and why why it helps with weight loss. I'm not an expert, but that is my personal experience. If you are changing your diet, do consult your doctor. But it worked for me. I went low carb and lost three stone and kept it off. And I don't eat sugar and all that stuff. But it's amazing how people will just, some people will just be, well, most of the people are like, oh, I went low carb and I, it's, all, all the tweets are about people that have had success and are agreeing with what I'm saying. But the people who don't agree, very often it's not empirical. Like they don't sort of send me statistical medical information. They don't send over science. They just attack like my hair or my forehead, which is apparently quite a big forehead. Who knew? Um, they'll just have a go at me. It's like they're not engaging with the points I've made. There's no desire to have a debate about this intellectually or to exchange information, or to swap statistics. It's just an ad hominem attack. Oh, and the other one is name calling. But the thing is, it doesn't affect me at all. Not even 0.1%. When I see this abuse, I smile, because I know that it's got nothing to do with me. That's just them. And I am a vector for their anger, their bitterness. And sometimes I want to respond, but I never do. I never do. I had a comedian 
that went after me for a while. Uh, purely because I had the temerity to express my views about a bunch of things, which I, th I thought was allowed. And this is a comedian that was always a friend, really. I mean, we were not, wouldn't go out for beers and stuff, but we were on the circuit together. We did a bit of TV together. So we were very friendly, you know. Yeah, whenever I saw him, probably a hug, you know, always pleased to see him. I was a fan, always very convivial. And then I just um, began doing my job, being a commentator on all sorts of public issues, you know, kind of moved slightly away from comedy, gone into current affairs because life is a journey. It doesn't go in straight lines. And uh, he went after me like for months, just quote tweeting, individual tweets, obsessed, right? Obsessed. Hilariously unfollowed me on Twitter and then carried on like retweeting my tweets and videos and carried on commenting on my tweets, even though he'd unfollowed me. Now, I've done like given him radio silence. I've done nothing. I don't engage at all. And by the way, kept the moral high ground by continuing to follow this person. But what does that tell you? It tells you they're furious, they're raging, and they're focused on me and endlessly having a go at me and going after me. Right? And nothing from me. It's all from them. And how can you be offended by that? How can you be upset by that? It's obviously that person. And I sometimes want to tweet and I want to kind of just say, hey, buddy, uh, hate to break it to you, but I'm not the reason why you're not why you're not more successful. I'm not the reason why your marriage didn't work out. I'm not the reason why you've you're in you're in not in great shape, really, for a man of your age. Um, it's not my fault that things just didn't pan out for you the way that you wanted them to. But of course, I wouldn't. Because I just think it's so much better to turn the other cheek. I don't want to. I think that if I sent that tweet, it would be seized upon by this person. They would love it. It would be the ammunition. They crave recognition of their abuse and gratification for it. A response. But all I've done is starved them of that attention. And I've done nothing. Privately, between you and me, I've just told you what I would like to do. I'd love to do a quote tweet. Just saying, I'm so sorry, it's not my fault. It's not my fault that your life is the way it is. It's not my fault that your dad never said I love you. It's not my fault that you didn't have a girlfriend for 10 years. It's not my fault that you're going, driving 200 miles for um, a gig in a shed somewhere. It's not my fault. So wish I could help. But there you go, but it, but it did teach me that it's about them, not you. So, And I've got a colleague actually at the moment, a colleague and friend that's getting a bit of grief at work. And I just told that my colleague that exact thing as well, is that you're getting a lot of hate. This person hates you. But that is to do with them and tied up in what's in their head and what's their backstory. And there's a lovely line from Anthony Hopkins who is such a great actor, isn't he? But he's also a bit of a philosopher and a bit of a poet, by the way, I think. Shall I be honest with you? I find most actors... No, you can't say most. I find some actors quite dull. Some of them are amazing. I think some actors, you know, they get into a business where your job is just to say lines out loud. My view of acting 
is that on a basic level, anyone could do it, right? Because you just, you could get your mum, couldn't you? Just to kind of learn some lines. And she's got to look at the other person and go, hey, Steve, I love you and I always have, right? Bang, she's an actor. Do you know what I mean? It's not like brain surgery, is it? I do think to be a brilliant actor is really hard. But I think to be a perfectly acceptable actor is takes almost nothing. And by the way, I would include TV presenter in that as well, by the way, which I do. There's nothing to it. To do it to a certain standard, anyone could. I mean, you've got the words on auto cue, the prompter, right? You say those words and then you turn to the guest and you ask them questions and then you say goodbye, we'll see you next time. There's nothing to it. But that's why I write monologues and stuff like that, because I want it, I want to make it harder than it is. And I want to give more of myself than you would. That's what I tried to do. Try to make it harder than it is. A bit like old uh, Gary Shandling with his comedy scripts, thinking, okay, the producers are happy with it, but it needs, for me, it needs one more going over. This this side doesn't work. How can we fix this bit? Um, there's an old saying in comedy that a joke is never written, only rewritten. But yeah, so take nothing personally. It's about them, not you. And if you have a strong sense of yourself, you never will take anything personally. Know who you are. Okay? None of it's about you. It's about them. And you need to teach yourself this over and over again. Just have a strong sense of who you are. Um, I'm going to have a bit of fun uh, this week and I'm going to record a video called Drill Dolan in which I'm asking people who follow me on Twitter to ask me any question. And the thing is, you know, I know about some things I don't know about other things, but you can honestly ask me anything and I'll just answer it. And it's because for my sins, for better or worse, I am who I am I am this and it's just it's that authenticity I suppose just be you and I think it's probably something I developed over time I'm sure that back in the day you know I was probably influenced by this and by that but I'm 49 now and I'm too old and too ugly I've been around the hill too many times to to um put up with any of that stuff uh, it was Mark Twain who said the great thing about telling the truth is you don't have to have a good memory. And that's it. So just be you, know who you are, be yourself, and then no one can hurt you because you'll know that if they attack you, it's about them, not you. I hope that was helpful. You know, when I do these little summing up of books, inevitably the best thing for you to do is to read it because you're going to process it in great depth and you're going to adapt it to what you need. But I think I think that's a clear message there. I think developing a strong sense of yourself, it is a hard thing to know who you are. I understand that is, the problem you've got is I've given you a piece of advice there and I never, on this podcast, I never want to recommend things that are like, what does he mean? I don't understand. And the problem is I didn't, I don't fully understand as I'm explaining it to you. I don't fully understand how it is that you can know who you are. So, and I feel that's why I've waffled on a bit with that part is because I'm trying to navigate to what is the takeaway for you in terms of know who you are. 
Uh, and I think actually the answer is for you to be really truthful to yourself and the world and to be authentic and just be you. And uh, it was Jordan Peterson who said that telling a lie is always going to have more fallout and more damage than than the pain of telling the truth. Because telling the truth, it, it can cause a bit of pain. You know, saying to a colleague, you know, you're not good enough at this or something. You're going to have to, whatever, you're going to have to move on from this department because you're not good enough or something horrible and a terrible thing. Or maybe to your partner, you know, um, I'm attracted to someone else at work and I want to go out with them, not you. Right? God, that's just awful, isn't it? But that is better than cheating on them for two years. Do you know what I mean? If you gave them the choice, they'd be like, yeah, yeah, I'd rather have a horrible conversation that makes me cry and go to Pizza Express and have a margarita than, than live a lie. So yeah, I think that's it really. Know who you are. And that's to do with every day examining who am I? Being real, being straight with people, being true to yourself. And that's by listening to your emotions, listening to your feelings and following what you want and who you are being your authentic self be you to a hundred be you to 200 old gary shandling right he goes out of that lab for a cup of water and he doesn't go back he knew who he was he had a strong sense of himself look at politicians that the politicians who are authentic and say what they think, they don't have trouble in interviews. They don't sweat. They don't stat stutter. They're not like, they're not like conviction politicians. They're like, ask me a question. I'll just tell you. Sadly, there aren't that many of them these days, but that is what it is. Number three, ask questions. Don't make assumptions or impressions that's it don't make a sorry forget about the ask questions one that's unconnected don't make assumptions or have impressions so for example let's say you're at work and it looks like someone's given you a dirty look you might think it's true and it could really drastically affect your relationship with that person but you might have misinterpreted because it's your emotions that are shaping your response to the dirty look and I've had that. I've had like when I thought someone didn't like me anymore or something. And it's just got all cooked up in my head. Most assumptions have no truth in reality. You can also think the other way. I can go the other way where you think maybe that there's somebody that's flirting with you on the tube. And then you'll find out much to your embarrassment that they were not flirting with you. But we make a lot of assumptions. And the reason why, and it ties in with that excellent other book, which I'm no, I have no... Um, hesitation and always recommending which is the chimp paradox by professor steve peters and um, he talks about how you've got this emotional little creature in your brain which is the monkey which is the chimp and the monkey just lives on impressions and assumptions it's all like mm, i've got the feeling this is what you think and i've got the impression this and i've got the feeling that it's unhelpful because it's not root reality it's not true and it's the same in relationships so the book talks about how you know, you, you have a lot of relationship problems because you think you know what your partner's thinking. You think they're psychic. They're not. So how do we fix that? We've got to ask questions and we've got to not make assumptions. So if it looks like Stephanie at work has given you a dirty look, you go to Stephanie and go, hi, Stephanie, hope you're well. 
listen, you, you looked at me earlier and you, you seemed a bit cross with me. Uh, is everything okay? And then Stephanie will say, oh, no, no, I just, I've got a really bad hangover. Nothing to do with you. I was badly hung over. So I've got this, got this very angry face. I'm just a bit tired. Or no, no, it wasn't you. I got shouted at by the boss. So I'm in a bad mood. And or they'll say, yes, I am furious with you because of dot, dot, dot. But either way, you got the information rather than just an impression or an assumption. We go around just having impressions the whole time. They're so inaccurate. The hit rate of the impressions that you have is very, very low. It's based on insecurity and anxiety and worry and jumping to conclusions. I would go as far as to say 80 to 90 percent of the time, your assumptions and your impressions are wrong. Why? Because they're based on irrational emotions. You need facts. So how do you get that? How do you get that? You ask questions. You inform, you know, relationships. I tell my missus, sometimes we have a fight and I'll say, I'm not psychic. You know, she'll be like, why didn't you do this? I'm like, oh, you, you know, I didn't know. I didn't think or it didn't occur to me or whatever. And vice versa, of course. So what fixes that? Communication. Because communication is the imparting of information. With information, you're laughing. Back to engineering, isn't it? Assumptions are damaging. That's something else the book says, which I think I've established. So you have to ask. The book talks about courageous questions. Say to someone, what's going on? Are you lying to me? Are you in love with Brenda? Anything like that. Right, now I've got the next one. How are we doing with these? Well, I think, how many have we done? One, no wait, have we done? Yes, one, two, three. Yeah, I've got the fourth. Here is the fourth agreement. And I really like this one. I love this one. And this is not complicated to explain. Sorry, we had uh, one or two technical hitches with uh, the recording um, and the little video image froze which will affect those watching on youtube for which i apologize but we've resolved it now i say we it's me <laughs> right now the final one easy peasy always do your best i love this one even if it constantly changes so that means even if doing your best constantly changes and the reason why this is brilliant because if you always do your best, then when you fail, you will not judge yourself. So doing your best is a cure for the pain of failure. Right? Failure cannot be avoided. Failure is always there. It's a tremendous energy and it's a tremendous motivator. And of course, the best ever educator but if you do your best and give something your all then you fail you won't judge yourself it's amazing so let's say it's a football match and you just prepared all week and you ate the right food and you got loads of sleep and then during the game, you just gave everything to the point where when the final whistle blew, you could barely breathe. You could barely stand. Your legs were just like, you need to be carried off the pitch. You're just left everything on the pitch. What more can you do? 
of course, you're going to learn from why you failed and how you could have got better and how you lost the match and get back on the drawing board. And of course, all of that, watch videos. But you're not going to hate yourself. You're not going to suffer emotionally because you know that you gave it your best shot. Um, let's say there's a work assignment. Let's say you're trying to get a new account from a client, right? Big, juicy account, multi-million pound account. You want that account. And you have been preparing your pitch for three months, right? Everyone else has been preparing it for like six weeks. You've been doing it for three months. And you've been going in at the weekend, and you've been thinking about it even when you're off duty, you've got a notebook and what other ideas would help with the pitch. And there's just, there isn't a single more thing you could have done. You then do not get the pitch. You're going to move on. There's no pain. But can you imagine, and how many times in your life have you been going for something that was amazing, that was your dream, but you didn't quite give it your all, you didn't get it? What a terrible nagging sensation, thinking, if I tried a bit harder, I could have got that. I could have got that job. I didn't really prepare for the interview quite as well as I could. And they noticed that. They picked up on that. That I hadn't really fully tried. And I didn't get it. It wasn't quite good enough. When you watch a great artist great musical artist, a great actor, when you read a great writer and they've just given it their all. You can tell, can't you? It's always good. It's always better. Football fans, right? Football fans are very patient. They're very understanding because with their teams, if they lose, the fans don't mind if they feel that the players tried. But let me tell you that football fans, if they sense that a team or a player is lazy, they will be unforgiving. But if they, if it's a sort of noble defeat and they can see that you ran your socks off and you were outclassed by the competition, the fans will forgive. They will understand. So always do your best because if you fail, you won't need to judge yourself. I love that. It's probably my favourite of the four, but they're all useful. Um, also, it says here that it changes and your best is sometimes amazing and sometimes it's terrible. So what that means is that if you try your best first thing in the morning when you're fresh and energetic, that's going to be really good, right? Uh, if it's late at night and you're worn out, well, then your best is not going to be as good, but it, you're still giving your best. But you might be leaving a little bit in the locker because you're like, I'm a, I've, I've run out of steam now. And I should probably go to bed because the work is counterproductive now. And I'm going to be fresh, not do it in the morning. So, you know, giving it your best, always doing your best is great, but it should be strategic, right? Because what I mean by that is if you took it to the extreme and were very black and white about it, if you're very binary about it, then um, you would just never go to bed preparing that company report. But that's silly because then you're going to kind of get run down. You're going to get ill. You're going to be tired. You're going to be depressed and it's counterproductive. So you're doing your best, but in a smart focused strategic way but just knowing right so any anything that you've got coming up that you're nervous about or worried about or if there's anything that you really want to happen just give it your best shot 
give it the maximum amount of time and effort and love and see what happens. And I promise you, if it doesn't happen, if it doesn't come off, you don't achieve that thing you wanted to achieve. If you maintain that application and that effort and that work ethic and that commitment, it just will happen eventually. It is like gravity. A lot of football metaphors today, but it is like the football team that keeps trying to score. Eventually, the ball will go in the back of the net. But if you try to score and 10 times the ball doesn't go in, well, 11th time it will. So keep the faith. Um, also, it says here, do your best because you love it. Um, working working hard won't, won't feel like work if you're doing something that you love. This is the other great challenge, of course, is to find something that you like to do because then it will be easier for you to do your best and it won't feel like work at all. Uh, it also says, um, break with the old agreements. It talks about the old agreement is the dream of first attention. You've had that since you were a baby and it's when you've been brainwashed and lied to and God knows why else. Decide on your beliefs. And that's called the dream of the second attention. And that's your programming. It's your brainwashing. OK, so we're rewriting the software here. It's about noticing the fear-based beliefs that cause your unhappiness. Okay. That you're not good enough, that this, you know, your value, you're just your rubbish person, whatever it is you've been told, you're not good enough. It's a terrible refrain that most people have. Uh, break them apart with new beliefs like the four agreements. So if you go for those four agreements, which are impeccable with your word, don't talk yourself down, take nothing personally, don't make assumptions. Always do your best. Make those the new approach. And of course, all I've given you, that I've not told you really what to do. I've just given you a framework. And into that framework, you're going to put your dreams, wishes and fundamental beliefs that are true to you. Rather than what your mum and dad told you or society. Um, at the moment, they say that what you've got here is like a parasitic organism in control of your mind. Forgive people who hurt you because forgiveness kills the parasite, that organism in control of our minds. Forgive it. If you're having a fight with your partner, if there's negativity, forgive it and it just makes it dissolve. Live each day as if it was your last, you have nothing that doesn't exist in the present. That's called the initiation of the dead. If you realize that you're going to die, then you will never care what people think about you, which is brilliant. Live each day as if it was your last. You have nothing that doesn't exist in the present. Which ties in very much with the book, The Power of Now, which we did a whole episode on just a couple of weeks ago, didn't we? Or was it last week? No, it was a few, it was a few shows ago, I think. I do lose track. Uh, right, well, look, it's been a bit of a juicy XL version of the show today. It's been lovely to have your company. And we'll do it all again 
in a week's time. So go and have a great week. See how you get on with those four agreements. And remember, reality is overrated and bad things are a gift. And think like an engineer. Lots of love. See you in a week. Bye-bye.